Thank you, David. Good morning, church. Well, uh, you may not may notice that I look a little different to you this morning. <laughs> Um, so let me tell you what's going on so it's not too much of a distraction today. Um, all this past week, I went to the men's night um, last Friday, so it was like seven or eight days ago. And uh, that night I came home and I uh, had a headache. And then the next day, um, it, was a, it was worse. And then throughout the week, the headaches just kept getting worse and worse, just like pounding, throbbing, pain. I f- it felt like my, somebody was squeezing my right eye and then jabbing it, you know, so it was incredible pain. Um, so, and then I started to get this skin rash that broke out on my forehead. And I'm like, okay, it's time to see a doctor. Um, Laura was freaking out, thinking that it might have been like a brain tumor or something. And so to put her mind at ease, put my mind at ease, let's just go to a doctor. So I did. I went to see a doctor and she looked at me and it was immediately, she was like, you are classic case shingles. That's what you've got. So uh, it's, Painful, very painful, uncomfortable, but it's nothing too serious, and uh, it'll, it'll go away, uh, could take a while, um, in a, in, but in the meantime, I'm uh, drugged up quite a bit, <laughs> so got a, got a lot of pain medication go on, but I may look funny uh, for a while till this clears up, so if you can't see it, I've, I took a picture yesterday sitting outside, uh, so I was, I was sitting outside and my neighbor, my next door neighbor comes out of her house. And she just walks out and looks at me and just says, well, I hope you won. (laughs) And then um, Reese, my daughter, yesterday, uh, she tells me that I look like um, Sloth from the Goonies. So, (laughs) well, then uh, I started thinking, like, well, I know I think it's more like Quasimodo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And so that's... (laughs) I was like, got the same droopy eye and everything. So it's, so this is, uh, this is what it may look like for a while until this thing goes away. But um, in the meantime, pray for me. Pray for the pain in particular. Pray that there's no damage to my eye. That's one of the concerns. Um, and if I say anything crazy today, just remember I am heavily medicated. Um, so that's, that can just be the heresy excuse. Uh, so we're going to continue our series in Genesis today. Um, focusing on the life and family of Jacob. And, uh, you know, Jason mentioned this earlier. It's an ugly story. Um, and so God's given you an ugly preacher to go along with the ugly story. Sort of a visual uh, sermon illustration. But um, this, oh, one other thing. I'm, I'm not going to hang out after the service um, just, just to keep my distance from folks. It's, it could be contagious for pregnant women or the elderly. So, um, I'm, but if anybody wants to say hi to me, I'm going to be in my office. It's just back here. So after the service or whatever, feel free to come back and say hello. I'll just be sitting in there. But otherwise, I'm not going to be lingering and hanging out after the service. Okay. Um, This topic is uh, very relevant for modern times because it seems like we hear about sexual assault or things of this sort all the time. It's just always in the news. Um, And this story is about a sexual assault of Jacob's daughter. But just as much, it's a story about how the people in positions of power deal with it. How they respond to this thing. So it's as relevant as ever because we're going to talk about sexual assault and how people in power deal with it, okay? So let's dig in. We are in Genesis 34, and we're going to cover this whole chapter today. Genesis 34, and we'll go, go, with it, uh, go through this a little bit at a time. Verse 1, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now, pause here. If this were a movie and not a book, then you would be seeing ominous cinematography and the music would be in a minor key because there there are clues here in the text that this is a setup for something bad that's about to happen. The phrase, women of the land, it may sound innocent to us at first, But in the context of Genesis, this is a bad sign. The fact that Jacob's young daughter would go out to see the women of the land, this is a bad sign. A developing theme in the book of Genesis is the wickedness of the Canaanites. And that's the women of the land here. These folks are under God's judgment. And that judgment is ultimately going to take place in the time of Joshua, the book of Joshua. So God's people were called to live in the land of Canaan but as a distinct people from the people of Canaan. 
They're called to be holy, sanctified, set apart. So most likely, Dinah would have been about 15 years old at this time. She's out alone, and she's socializing with the women of the land, these pagan women that don't know the Lord, they don't, they don't share the values, they don't know the, the same God. So um, she's away from the protection of her family, and as her father, Jacob, he was responsible to make sure that she was protected. He shouldn't have allowed her to go, and yet she went anyway. So this was a foolish decision. This was naive on her part, and that decision is going to have some disastrous consequences. So let's look at verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, powerful guy, he saw her, there's four verbs, saw her, he seized her, and lay with her, and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the, son of, or the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. There's four verbs, saw her, seized her, lay with her, humiliated her. This is a rape. Shechem raped this girl, and he thought nothing of it. And neither did his dad, Hamor. The point being that these are violent, wicked people. They don't, they don't care um, about this. And so that is one of the many reasons why these people are under the wrath of God. In Deuteronomy 22, later, the, the penalty in Israel for rape under these circumstances is a death penalty. So this, for the death penalty for the rapist, that's, that's how serious this is. Um, I was on a website earlier this week, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, the NSVRC. Um, and I was just going through and looking at some statistics, and they published stats and resources about rape. And so stats like this in situations like this, they're really hard to pin down because it relies on self-reporting and the circumstances could be so various. Nevertheless, if these stats hold up, um, here's, here's what they say. They say that 21% of women have experienced rape or attempted rape in their lifetime. 21%. So that's one in five women based on how they define the, you know, the particular thing. So one in five women. Now, a third of those women, for them, it happened between the ages of 11 and 17. So these are young girls, young girls. So middle school, high school age. So it, most likely it would happen at places like parties or sleepovers, things like that. Um, oftentimes it could be from close family members. And so the thing is, like, sexual assault is almost always a crime of opportunity. A man takes advantage of a woman, uh, in most cases a woman, who is in a vulnerable position. So let's say if stats like this hold up and this is a, you know, a fair representation of reality... Just doing the numbers in our church, there's a good chance about 35 women or girls at Christ the King have experienced some form of sexual assault or attempted sexual assault. 35. We don't know if that's true or not, but that's if the, if the, if the averages hold. And of course, it's not just women. A lot, it's, it's young boys also. They can be abused. And this always causes emotional, spiritual, not to mention physical damage to them. And there's also the feelings of shame and guilt, and it affects their souls, it affects their relationships. It is a, a very powerful thing that, that really can have great impact on a person's life. So regardless of the circumstances and whatnot, this, this sort of sin is evil. Sexual abuse is evil, and the victims of it rarely receive justice for what is done to them. Now, we can't always prevent these things from happening, but we can do some things to reduce the, the likelihood. We can, you can do things to protect yourself and the people that you love. And so, I, like I've already said, most of the instances of rape or sexual abuse are crimes of opportunity, and the predators who do these things are opportunistic, and they prey on the naive. They prey on those that allow themselves to be put in vulnerable situations. And as, mu as much as you can, you can remove yourself from those vulnerable situations or reduce that. 
And so one of the most important things you can do is just to be extra careful about who you spend time alone with. Listen, I, you are under no obligation to trust anyone. Trust is not a virtue. Trust is not a fruit of the Spirit. So you can be slow to trust. That's okay, to be slow to trust. You can make it a personal policy not to be alone with men that you do not know well and don't trust. And if you were to just take that step, you can, you can eliminate the opportunities that may come about if you, were, you know, if you were in that situation with someone. Now, the same goes for parents, too, with their kids. Now, now I'm speaking to all parents, but especially when I want to speak to the dads, the fathers. Kids are naive, all right? They're young, they don't have the life experience, they don't experience the evil in the world, and if they are raised in a Christian home with loving parents, all the more so will, be, will they be hopefully removed from the evil of the world. And so they, they, they can, that can tend to produce, Christian households can tend to produce naive people. And that's, that, that's, that's a good thing because that, that you don't want people to be jaded because they're constantly being sinned against. But over time, they do need to learn about the, the evil in the world. And as they learn, you are the one, parents, fathers, that can help teach them, but you protect them also. So they don't realize how much evil is camouflaged by niceness. Very often, predators are winsome and charismatic people. I mean, they, they're not always the creepy guy, you know, kind of you know, just sort of hanging around and acting weird and creepy or whatever. It's like a lot of times they're, they're very winsome, charismatic, successful personalities. And they gain access to your kids by first gaining your trust. I mean, most of the time, um, abuse happens with children by friends and close family members. So it could be somebody staying at your house or kids staying at somebody else's house, a friend or a relative. You might know the name Larry Nassar. Um, he was the physician. He was a doctor for the women's Olympic gymnast, or the, the gymnast team, whatever you call that. He was the doctor. And he had access to who knows how many dozens, if not hundreds of women, and he abused many of them, many of them. And the fact that he was so good at gaining trust, he got away with it for years and years where there were reports that would surface and nobody would believe the women that would come forward with the report. Because like, well, not Larry Nassar, no way. It's like, it, you just misinterpreted it. And he would even give you know, some medical explanation for the, the sexually abusive things that he was doing to these women in his practice. I saw a story about a young woman who was in college. Her, she worked at a restaurant and um, her boss, who was a married man, he made a sexual advance towards her. So, not knowing what to do, she called her dad. Uh, she's a Christian woman, Christian dad. And the dad said, you need to quit your job immediately. Now, she lived like four hours away. He said, you need to quit that job immediately. So, remove yourself from the opportunity where something bad might happen to you. Which she did. Now, she found out later on, she didn't know at the time, but later on she found out that, without her knowledge, her dad got in his car, drove four hours, to the restaurant where this man worked and confronted that man, threatened him. You know, I'm sure in a most godly and polite way, but, <laughs> <laughs> but threatened this guy. Say, if you put your hands on my daughter, then you're going to have it. So that's what a loving father does. A loving father um, can, you know, in, in the best way, in situations like this, assume the worst in order to protect his children. And since... Since these abuse cases are usually crimes of opportunity, you can remove the opportunity. I mean, I'll, I won't go into detail about this, but I'll just tell you, it's like I, I grew up in an environment around a predator like this. I grew up in a home, and I saw this happen. Um, and it was, it was something that we didn't know what was happening until years later. But it was happening. It was happening in our home. And it was, it was a, an opportunity was there. I've seen the damage it does. I've seen the tactics and the behaviors, and it's more common than you would think. You would think, well, it's the made-for-TV movie situation, the rare, rare exception, but it's, it's, it is a lot more common than you would think. 
And people often ignore it just because they don't want it to be true. So you don't have to be rude or accusatory or anything like that, but you can set some rules in advance and be ready to tell your kids no a lot. And just say, like, that's not what we do. You're not going to be put in a position where somebody could harm you. For, for Laura and me, uh, me especially, <laughs> but, um, I've just kind of accepted the fact that I'm going to be the, that dad. We're going to be those parents that are considered overprotective, a little, a little over the top. We're the parents that, you know, if, if there's a sleepover and all the kids in the class are there. Well, kids will go, my kids will go, and then I come and pick them up at 11 p.m. I don't let them stay overnight because there could be a brother, older brother, could be, you know, a dad, stepdad, it could be an uncle. They're, and I'm just like, you're not staying there. Um, that's, that's not wise because it is, that is the exact sort of situation where an opportunity is presented where a girl could be, uh, or a boy could be, um, could be harmed. Now, of course, if you do this, your kids will call you overprotective. They'll accuse you of that. I've experienced this. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that's fine. Own it. Screen print it. Wear it on a t-shirt. Be like, I'm the overprotective dad. That's fine. Because I figure if they ever need therapy, I would rather my kids get therapy complaining to their therapist about their overprotective dad than get therapy because they've been abused by a predator. I'll take that. I'll take that. Protect your, your children. All right, verse 5. Let's keep moving. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. So we know from verse 1, Dinah was Leah's daughter. Remember, Jacob had four wives. And do you remember which wife he didn't love? It was Leah. Leah was the wife that Jacob didn't care too much about. And it was Leah's daughter, Dinah, that was abused. Jacob didn't love uh, Leah, and Jacob did the same thing to her child, Dinah, that his own father did to him. She wasn't the favored daughter. Jacob wasn't the favored son. And so this story needs to be read in that light. He didn't seem to care that his own daughter was assaulted. Now, you compare that to his reaction later on in the story whenever Joseph goes missing. He's worried. He's freaked out. He's doing, it's like, find this boy, whatever you do. But when he finds out his own daughter was raped, he doesn't do much. It's like, he just doesn't give a whole lot of thought for this girl. So verse 5 says, when Jacob heard about it, he held his peace. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. There's peacemakers and there's peace lovers. In this case, Jacob was a peace lover. He didn't want to stir up trouble. He seemed unmoved. He said nothing. He did nothing. In fact, Jacob doesn't say a single word this whole chapter until we get to the very end of the story. Now, his ambivalence toward Dinah, now notice the contrast. Jacob held his peace, but when the brothers heard about it, they freaked out. They're indignant, they're angry, that this is outrageous, this thing must not be done. So they had a proper response. An outrageous crime cried out for justice, and they wanted justice. This outrageous thing must not be done. And in their rage over Dinah, they plotted to get revenge. They're going, to have their, they're going to have their vengeance in one way or another. So the situation, though, is about to get more complicated because Shechem's father, Hamor, he's going to, he approaches Jacob and offers a deal. Now let's look at verse 8. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Well, that's a bold thing to ask. Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will 
and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give the young woman to be my wife. Now, notice what nobody has acknowledged so far. Not Hamor, not Shechem, not Jacob. Nobody has acknowledged the fact that Dinah was raped by this guy. They're not talking about the rape. They're not talking about justice. They're not talking about the assault. Now, verse 2, it says that Shechem was a prince in the land. And that implies status, wealth, power. And so his father used his status, his wealth, and his power to shield his son from accountability, right? Use his power to keep anything from happening to his son. But there was no contrition, no apology, no repentance. And then they had the audacity to try to turn the rape into a marriage. Now, this, this is completely strange to us. And the Bible is not saying, well, this is how it must be done. So just, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is endorsing the practice, in this case here. But what, what they're proposing in that culture did make sense. There was a, she was defiled. She was dishonored. And the way that you can restore her honor, at least in some degree, is to make her a wife. And so getting married and paying a very high bride price would restore her honor and would compensate the family for the loss of the, the, the daughter's loss of honor. But in this case, marriage was not an option. Why is that? God does not allow his people to intermarry with non-believers. It was true then, it's still true now. God does not allow his people to marry non-believers. In this case, we're talking about the very early stages of the covenant. We're only on the third generation here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So the entirety of God's covenant people is right here in this camp with Jacob. Now let's say they intermarried and they... Uh, married with their daughters and their daughters married their daughters and so forth, God's people would have been swallowed up and totally assimilated into Hamor's family. The covenant would, would disappear, right? I mean, it was like God's people would just be assimilated into Hamor's family and then the unique distinctness of God's covenant people would be gone. And so maybe Hamor's thinking that Jacob could be appeased if he's presented with an opportunity to profit from the situation. We've seen before, Jacob, he likes making money. He's pretty resourceful. He knows how to turn a bad situation to his advantage. And there's an opportunity here for him to make money. So Jacob is faced with two options. Option A is to demand justice. But that's bad for business. Option B is to ignore the problem, turn a rape into a marriage, profit from it. It's good for business. 2018, um, the Me Too movement was, um, was initiated, and it rocked entertainment industry with, with revelations of rampant sexual abuse, um, particularly in Hollywood, film, TV, that, that, that area. So you had the, the Hollywood studios and their executives would use their money and their power to protect Men who were known sexual predators. It's like an open secret. And there are names that you would recognize. I won't say it because they've not been convicted. But there are names that you would recognize that are known sexual predators. But they were protected because they're A-listers. They, they they're good at what they do. They make good movies. People turn out to see them. And so there are a lot of well-known actors and directors that were implicated. And they make very popular movies and TV shows that so they star in them and direct them. One of them that was convicted was Bill Cosby. I grew up watching this guy. And it was like the epitome of wholesome family entertainment. I mean, Bill Cosby, it's like his comedy acts. I mean, extraordinarily talented. He's, he's really funny. And it was like, it, it was clean. You know, it wasn't like, you know, the raunchy, dirty stuff. Bill Cosby's stuff was clean. So he's like a comedian you could listen to with the family. And he always told jokes about, you know, marriage and parenting and kids. Hilarious stuff. And the Cosby Show it was the most popular show on TV. I mean, Thursday night, can't miss TV, the Cosby Show. And well, I can't remember what was after it, but it was like two shows. What was after the Cosby? Different World. That's right, Lindsay. <laughs> a different world. So Cosby and a different world. Very popular shows. And now Bill Cosby is in prison 
for felony sexual assault. Of course, the other name that we've heard in this regard is Harvey Weinstein. And so, I mean, there, there's so many hit movies that, um, you know, take forever to name them all. But Pulp Fiction is, a, is one. Goodwill Hunting, Shakespeare in Love. He founded Miramax uh, Films. And, I mean, they've won Oscars. They've very, very successful, um, you know, movie studio. Harvey Weinstein is now in prison for criminal sexual act and rape. But there are a lot of others that are well-known names, and you would know the names that are predators, and they are protected by the studios. So if you just want to go on Wikipedia, if you want to read it for yourself, the, 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 all the stories there. Look up Me Too movement or sex scandal in Hollywood or whatever. It's like there's a Wikipedia article on it, and it'll give you, give you a lot of details, but a lot of them are accusations that are not corroborated, which is why I won't mention the names here. The point being, it's like if you've got talent and you start raking in millions for the studios and you start racking up the Oscars and the Emmys, you can get away with it. There are those that have literally gotten away with murder. And they're still making movies. In my early 20s, I personally went through a crisis of faith. Um, I had these crippling doubts. It was a very significant trial. Um, and I almost, it almost destroyed my faith. Well, there was a friend of mine who recommended to me some books. There was a particular author who wrote about the very issues that I was struggling with just sort of intellectual doubts about the Christian faith. And so um, these books were amazingly helpful, and the Lord used those books and that author to rescue my faith. That author's name was Ravi Zacharias. Um, you may have heard his name. He died last May, uh, 2020. But, you know, at the time he died, there were rumors that he had had inappropriate sexual relationships with several women um, and a lot of times it would take place in massage parlors. And he would go there, I'm like, oh, ministry's stressful, what, I need a massage. And then he would, in that situation, use the opportunity to advance at women and to um, use his power to take advantage of these women. Since his death, there have been, um, it can't be, can't be convicted or he can't defend himself, so it's a weird situation now, but, but it's pretty much a uh, very well established fact that he did these things. So it turns out also that he had falsified his credentials. He lied about his, um, his, his degrees and, you know, what he'd earned. He had plagiarized material. And so as much as the Lord used him in my life, I hate to say it, but Ravi Zacharias was a fraud. Is he in heaven? I don't know. But his ministry was a fraud. Well, evidently, there were some people at his organization, huge organization, RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And lots of, they do apologetics and a lot of traveling conferences and things of that sort. And so some people at the ministry knew it. They knew what was happening. They didn't take appropriate action, though, to deal with the problem. Why is that? It's bad for business. It's bad for business. Make no mistake, the worst part of this was how the ministry and Ravi himself spiritualized it. Ravi would say to his victims, it's like, well, you can't tell anybody what's going on between us. It's like, you and I know that you're ministering to me as a man of God. But if this were to be known, people would not understand. And it would destroy their faith. It would do a lot of harm. So you've got to keep this quiet. And that, he said that to several women. The appropriate way to deal with people like Ravi Zacharias would be a public acknowledgement and a rebuke and repentance. Now, if that happened, that would destroy the organization. So the people, the board members, or whoever is in charge of Ravi Zacharias' ministry, they would have to make a decision that the right thing to do would cost us all of our jobs. That was a tough call. And they... I, don't, I haven't followed the internals, so I don't know all the details, but from my vantage point, it didn't, doesn't look like they made the right call. So they protected him instead, and they handled it internally, which means they, private conversations, but swept it under a rug. Now, this internal handling it, that enabled his abuse to continue for years. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Sexual predators use their trust to gain access to people, and then they use power and money to avoid accountability for what they've done. So whenever Jacob learned what happened to Dinah, he had an opportunity here to seek justice, to, to demand accountability for what Shechem did to his daughter. But Jacob wanted to avoid a nasty conflict. It would have been ugly. It would have ruined their, their you know, uh, growing business relationship. But his failure to bring justice there, it ignited a war within his own house. Because now his boys, his sons, they are furious because, they, because he's not going to seek justice for this thing that happened to their sister. So that made the brothers' outrage even worse. And they would not be denied justice. And so they plotted revenge using deception. Ironically, that's a skill they learned from their daddy. Jacob was a masterful deceiver. Well, let's see what happened. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us, meaning we can't intermarry with non-believers. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised, meaning we're not going to assimilate into you. You have to assimilate into us and become like one of us. You with me? Verse 16, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. Now, when they say take our daughter, what, what the text, is, it's a little ambiguous here, but evidently Dinah was being held at Shechem's house. She's still there. She was raped and kind of took into his house so he could just go out and try to make a marriage out of it. She was being held there. So he's saying, hey, if you don't agree to this thing, we're going to come there. And it, it implies the use of force. We're going to come there and we're going to take her. So there's a, there's a not so subtle threat of violence here. Now let's keep reading. Verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. Wealth and power, right? Hollywood mogul. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city, where important business is transacted, the gate of the city, and spoke to the men of their city saying, now notice what isn't said here. Verse 21, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? So now he's saying something different here. It's like we get, we're going to end up taking all their stuff from them because we can overwhelm them. Only let us agree with this, only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Again, while Hamor and Shechem are selling the deal to the men of the city, they did not mention the rape of Dinah. They said, these men are at peace with us. This is just a, a friendly treaty for us to live together. Now, what Jacob's sons know is that performing a circumcision on an adult man and presumably a crudely performed circumcision would lay this dude on a shelf for a few days. Um, he's not going to be moving around or making war, that's for sure. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor. And his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house, there it is, and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Then they took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives 
All that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Notice Simeon and Levi here, the two guys who did the killing, they're described as Dinah's brothers. Well, Dinah had um, six sons. The oldest was Reuben, but the second and thirdborn are Simeon and Levi. See, these are Dinah's full brothers, sons of Leah, the not-so-favored children. So they did the killing, and then the other brothers came along after everybody was dead, and they plundered the city, and they took all the goods and the women and the children after, afterward. Now, what did they do? The deception was that they took the covenant sign that was a promise of life. Circumcision, which implied procreation, reproduction, multiplication, a sign of blessing and life. And they weaponized it, and they turned it into an instrument of death. It'd be like a guy getting saved here, and uh, you know, time for him to be baptized, but I don't really care for him too much. And so, you know, it's like, well, we baptize you in the name of the, and just hold him down. <laughs> It's a sign of life, of renewal, of restoration, but turning it into an instrument of death, to weaponize it. Verse 30, now Jacob has something to say. What does he say? Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So after remaining silent throughout this whole chapter, he speaks up. He's finally got something to say. And what's on his mind? He says, you've brought trouble on me. What an incredibly selfish thing to say. He's not worried about his daughter. He's worried about how it's going to impact him personally. It's like, man, things were going on smoothly, and then you, you cause all this trouble for me. But then the response that is about to come from Simeon and Levi is, is a very powerful question. And they're going to rebuke Jacob with this question. Look at verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So even though what they did was a treacherous thing, they were right about this. They shouldn't have killed the people and lied and did all that, but they were right on this point. They loved their sister. Hamor treated their sister like a prostitute, and Jacob acted like a pimp by trying to profit from her exploitation. So this is a terrible situation, right? And it got worse and worse along the way. And there's plenty of injustice in this chapter. There was the initial sin. And then there was all the sinful responses to that sin. Making it worse and worse. So what, what can we learn from this story? What do we do? What, what not to do? What does the gospel teach us? As much as we'd like to hope that something like this would never happen. Sadly, these things do happen. Maybe not the murder and the pillaging of a city. But... Sexual assault still happens, right? So the gospel message then that we believe is that Jesus Christ is king over all. He's the Lord. And he died for our sins, and he brings forgiveness and healing. We talked about this in our liturgy. Forgiveness and healing to all who believe those things are available to us. And the power of the gospel is not merely in believing it in our minds, but walking it out in our lives. So I want to conclude today with two practical ways that we can walk out the implications of the gospel in light of sexual abuse and in light of the cover-ups of people in authority. So those two areas. Now, to narrow the scope just a little bit, we're going to assume that the victim of sexual abuse in question has come forward in seeking justice, okay? Or we'll make that assumption. So two points of application. The first one is this. For those who are in positions of authority... Don't cover it up, but rather expose it. Don't cover it up, but expose it. For Hamor, he tried to bury it and act like nothing happened. Likewise, Jacob, he was passive. He could have pursued justice for his daughter, but he didn't. Ephesians 4.11 says this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So don't ignore it. Now, 
in our day, in our culture, legal system, exposing evil deeds would mean at least reporting the incident to the police or proper authority. Let me, let me tease this out a bit. God delegated his authority to three separate domains. There's the home, there's the church, and the state. The, the rod is the instrument of discipline for the home. Um, the keys are the keys of the kingdom belong to the church. And then the sword is the, the instrument of discipline for the state. Three domains. And since power tends to corrupt, God separated these authorities but given them overlapping jurisdictions. So in a, in a situation like this, or, or rather, or let's say not a sexual assault, but just like a sexual immorality. Let's say a sexual immorality happens within a church. Sexual immorality is a sin, but it's not a crime, okay? And so since it's not a crime, it is the church's jurisdiction. The church has the authority to enact church discipline on the one who, if they're unrepentant in their sin. In the case of a church elder... Let's say a church elder is sexually immoral or sexually abusive in some way. The public nature of his ministry requires a public response. Now, sexual assault is both a sin and it is also a crime. So now we have multiple uh, domains of authority overlapping. And so the crime needs to be reported to the police. If somebody had sexually abused a minor, if somebody had committed rape or some other kind of sexual assault, you've got to report that to the police because the church is not equipped or called to do a criminal investigation. Now, that's what is wrong whenever some churches or ministries will say, we're going to handle this internally. If a crime has been committed, the church does not have jurisdiction there. And so if there is an accusation, if it's a credible accusation, then the church needs to report it to the proper authority who can handle justice, trusting God to work through that, uh, that institution to bring about justice. So um, regarding a, a church elder, let's say, 1 Timothy 5, verse 19 and 20, it says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's a, there's a protection here in Scripture from somebody to just make, make a wild accusation without any sort of backup. So the, the, the threshold of a credible testimony in those days was there need to be two or three witnesses that would attest to that crime having taken place. There's different thresholds now, but there's some, there's some need to protect elders from just people trying to take them out of the ministry by false accusations. However, as for those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all. So there's a public acknowledgement, a public accounting for what they did so that the rest may stand in fear. There's more that we could say about that, but that's the general idea. If there's a crime, it's reported to the police. Um, otherwise, it is, it is handled by um, the church, and the church needs to expose it and deal with it. Now, for those that have been victims of sexual assault or abuse, I want to highlight the necessity of forgiveness. Forgiveness is an indispensable part of the healing process. Now, I've said this a few weeks ago, and I'll repeat it here. When I say forgiveness, I do not mean reconciliation. If you want to know more about that, I preached a sermon on it about a year ago, the parable of the unforgiving servant, uh, Matthew 18. So look up that sermon. I go into much more detail about this. But for now, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. I'm talking about the inner work of forgiveness in your heart towards the other person. So if you've been the victim of sexual abuse, the Lord knows how that's affected you. And you can trust the Lord to give you whatever strength or faith is required and needed to obey him. So if forgiveness were too much to ask, then the Lord would not have required it. But he does require it. So in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving, unforgiving servant, we're called to forgive into, in proportion to how much we've been forgiven. Now, of course, as Christians, we've been forgiven of anything and everything, of, of unspeakable crimes against the Lord. And so that's our standard of forgiveness towards others. So unforgiveness is never an option. Jesus is the great physician who knows how to heal a broken heart. And the prescription for healing includes forgiveness. The thing is, is that the heart that doesn't forgive 
doesn't heal. An unforgiving heart will harden into bitterness and resentment. Healing comes through forgiveness. And if there's no forgiveness, then healing is not going to be fully possible. Now, the path to forgiveness may take a long time. There could be a lot of things that contribute to it. But stay on that path. Keep moving in that direction toward forgiveness. And then watch and trust the Lord to see what he'll do in your heart. It may take more faith than you think you've got. But God always gives us what he requires of us. He will strengthen you and you will find that you will have greater faith and your faith will be strengthened and you'll grow through this step of obedience. So whatever faith you need to forgive, ask God to give it to you and God will give you the faith you need to obey him. I heard a story recently of a woman who was raped and then murdered and the police ended up catching the man who did it. And so there was a trial and he was convicted and at the end of the trial during the sentencing phase that's when the victims of the the, the family members of the victim they get to speak out in court and they get to say whatever they want to um, whoever was guilty of the crime. And so the woman who was killed, her sister, spoke up in court. And she, she just unloaded on this guy, yelling at him, screaming at him, telling him all the pain that he'd caused, all the misery he'd caused. And you would think, well, of course, she has every right to do that. And in our legal system, the legal, our law provides the opportunity to do that. But this woman is also a Christian. And what the Lord did in her heart through this situation is, is amazing. Because the Lord convicted her that she did not react appropriately. So what happened was she had been studying scripture and she happened to be studying this text in Genesis 34. And the Holy Spirit convicted her powerfully that her behavior in court was the emotional equivalent of what Levi and Simeon did. It was taking out and venting all of the wrath and rage and fury in her heart, all of her desire for vengeance, and getting a pound of verbal flesh from this guy. That was all that she could do, but she just unloaded on this guy. And she was so filled with hatred and rage. She wanted him to die. She wanted vengeance. She wanted blood. And most people would hear the situation and think, of course that's a totally appropriate response. But as Christians, we have to recognize that God calls us to a higher standard. So she started praying about it. She, was, she felt convicted to repent of her anger, even to repent of the way she spoke to this man. And the Lord started giving her the faith to do so. I mean, isn't that just like the way the Holy Spirit works? God, this terrible crime that happened, the Lord worked through this terrible crime to make this woman more like Jesus. I'm sure it has taken more faith than she ever thought possible to be able to respond in this way, but the Lord has summoned from within her in the power of the Spirit, the strength and the faith to respond in a healthy way and to repent of her spirit of Simeon Levi that hated and wanted to tear this man to shreds. So she showed grace to this man She's working to forgive the man and to live out the gospel to this man. Not only that, she started praying for his soul. Asking God to save him and has even considered writing him in prison to repent of the way she spoke to him. That is an incredible act of faith to do that. But with God, all things are possible. God will give you the faith you need to obey him and do what he calls you to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, trusting and knowing that you are the good Father, that your love for us is beyond calculation. And Lord, you see and know those who have been assaulted sexually, both men and women, in different ways. They've been abused, violated, and those leave deep scars, and there's pain there. 
We thank you, God, that you are the great physician and that you know exactly the prescription for healing. And we thank you, God, for the strength and the power of the Spirit to forgive as we have been forgiven, even as we pray in the, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Father, I, I, I pray for the situations that we've addressed and how they might manifest in our church. One, I pray for the victims of sexual assault in our church. I ask you, Lord, to, to use that situation in ways that they would never expect to glorify your name and to produce fruit in their lives for Christ. Lead them on that path and show them what they need to do. Give them the strength to forgive. Lord, I thank you also that the fruit of the gospel includes forgiveness for those who have committed um, sexual assault and maybe they've eluded accountability. Lord, I pray that whatever whatever cleansing of their conscience or appropriate steps they need to take, Lord, I ask you that, you'll, that you will lead them to do that. Give them the wisdom, Lord, to know what should they do. Lord, I pray against, protect our church, protect our children, our women, our young men, protect the people of this church from sexual assault. May we be vigilant. Help us to be vigilant to protect our children from this happening. And Lord, if in your wisdom you permit it to happen in our church, we ask you to give us the faith to walk out the proper procedure shown us in Scripture for dealing with it and to pay whatever cost is associated with it. Lord, I pray for the men in our church that pray that you will give self-control so that these men will be able to never commit an unspeakable act like we saw in this story. So Lord, we need protection all around. And by the strength and power of your spirit, we trust and pray that you will give it to us. Thank you for the gospel and just the beauty of all the things that we've seen and what the gospel gives us, leads us to. Thank you that it glorifies and exalts Christ even in the ugliness of sin in the process of pursuing justice and forgiveness. Glorify your name, Lord. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.